Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Podcast. I'm Ashley Mueller. This week's episode explores some of the latest global issues affecting peace, security, and international cooperation. The race to take over cyberspace and dominate the digital world is rapid and ever-changing as global actors push the limits. We speak about the battle for cyberspace with Dr. Adam Sigal, Ira A. Lipman Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security and Director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Adam Segal speaks with Dr. Robert Dewar, Head of Cybersecurity at the GCSP on the battle for cyberspace. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much for uh, coming to the Geneva Center for Security Policy to talk about the U.S., China, and the battle for cyberspace. Uh, we're looking forward to a very interesting discussion. Um, we just have a few questions uh, to kind of start the ball rolling and to, to look at some of the core issues around cyberspace, around diplomacy in cyberspace. Um, if you could just tell us uh, what, in your view, uh, are the main areas of concern in the current U.S.-China relationship when it comes to cyber issues? So I, I think both sides are worried about how cyberspace affects core national interests, uh, security and, and, and economic interests, and, and both have uh, pivoted to trying to uh, shape uh, international cyberspace, the, the rules, the technology, uh, the, the behaviors. Uh, I think the, the pivot is in some ways more uh, surprising in the Chinese case. Um, you know, we had often conceived of China as being very inwardly focused on cyberspace, uh, uh, filtering technology, keeping information out, what we you know, broadly know as, know as the Great Firewall. Um, but the fact is, is that China increasingly now uh, sees the ability to shape international cyberspace as important to its domestic concerns. Uh, and I think the U.S. was um, in part caught unaware by that. Uh, it, it was slow to react uh, and now is trying to, I think, uh, regain some of the initiative on, on how you think about, define the rules of behavior. And do you see that as particularly problematic that we've got uh, China and the U.S. competing both economically uh, but also diplomatically? Well, I, I think the, the problem is, um, one, the, the breadth of the competition seems uh, unbounded. Uh, so both sides um, increasingly see the competition as zero sum uh, and, and don't have a lot of areas where they uh, have cooperative uh, interests. Uh, and the other is, is that the rules of the competition are un uncertain and, and unknown. Um, you know, certainly on the actual operations side, um, on what type of hacking might be legitimate or what types of behavior might be legitimate, uh, there is a divide between the two actors. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, for a long time has tried to convince the world that uh, there are certain types of hacking that would be legitimate. Uh, most of those would be political military, which is, you know, Countries always have spied and they will continue to spy and we, we cannot expect any real international regulation of that. But the theft of industrial secrets through cyber-enabled cyber means uh, should be considered illegitimate uh, and um, has brought uh, pressure on China to accept that norm. 
China briefly seemed to accept that norm, but now um, the agreement between the U.S. and China on hacking seems to no longer being um, followed. Um, so there's clearly some space for competition and um, uh, misunderstanding there. I think the other the other worrying uh, issue is that on the on the rules for cyber conflict or what we might consider cyber war, uh, both sides also have very different understanding of application of international law and, and other norms. And so you can imagine that uh, a uh, crisis or other type of uh, political tensions in the South China Sea or Taiwan Straits could escalate in ways that neither side uh, truly wants or could control. Yeah, you've painted a picture of uh, important concerns, as you said, for national security purposes and economic security. and. There is a prevailing narrative that cyber issues and the conflicts and problems that arise through differences of approach to cyber issues tends to repeat that conflict and ingrain that conflict. So the narrative sometimes, uh, from, from my perspective and I'm sure from your perspective, is often very negative when it comes to cyber issues. Are there opportunities? Is there a positive message that we can take from uh, some of the, the aspects of the, the US-China relationship just to kind of yeah. ameliorate yeah. the narrative? Yeah, I, I mean, I often joke that, and I'll probably later joke that I've never ended a cyber talk on a positive note. Um, so it, it is very hard to find right now uh, shared interest, common, in, common interest. I, I, and, and, and that really, part of it is cyber, right? I think part of it is the, the how far apart the two sides are on common cyber understandings, but, but a lot of it, it just has to do about the, the state of the U.S.-China relationship right now is so lacking in trust that it, it's, it's hard to, to figure out where that space would be. That, that said, you know, not trying to fight the, the, the scenario, um, there, are, there are clearly some areas where there should be shared, shared concern. The, the, the first one is the one that I, that I already alluded to, which is that neither side wants a, uh, a cyber conflict or uh, cyber issues to spill over into the physical world uh, because of miscalculation, right? Uh, neither side wants you know to be dragged into something that they didn't that they weren't planning for, uh, and so here, uh, bilateral or multilateral or through the UN discussions about. Uh, thresholds for the use of force or an armed attack, uh, some con common shared conceptions about uh, escalatory ladders um, or discussions about that. Because there's a lot of uh, uh, worrying differences between how the two sides talk about deterrence in cyberspace. And uh, for example, in some of the open source uh, Chinese writings, what they consider a deter uh, an attack that would um, be have a, de a kind of a deterrent value from a, from a Western or a US perspective would seem to be a failure of deterrence. So in some cases, Chinese writers say, well, you can restore deterrence by taking out the uh, adversary's command and control systems. Well, from a US perspective, that would not be a deterrent uh, movement. That would be a failure of deterrence. You're already uh, escalated. So trying to get some understanding there. And, and there were um, forum for that. Um, there was a strategic and economic dialogue between the two sides, a uh, number of track twos and 1.5s, um, and then the, the UN process through the group of government experts. All of those right now are, uh, 
you know, have their own political problems. The bilateral discussions aren't happening. Uh, track 1.5s have really kind of, as far as I can tell, slowed down. Um, and the UN GGE process, uh, you know, the last meeting had this serious uh, disagreement about application of international law, and now we have two processes with the UN GGE and the and the open-ended working group. So I, I don't think there's a lot of, unfortunately right now, there's not a lot of progress on that side. Those discussions could also uh, talk about um, some shared value, I think, and shared interest in protecting um, the the basis of the uh, internet. So, you know, people talk about the domain name system and other kind of uh, core core systems of the internet, which neither side really has a has a huge amount of um, desire to see go down. It would have a damaging effect on both of the economies. And, and uh, there might be some shared interest in talking about targets that should be off limits, the financial system. So there, I think there are shared interests. I just, I'm not sure there's the political uh, ability or desire right now to, to work on them. That's a really interesting point that you mentioned about uh, what would be considered off-limits, whether the, the, the core of the internet should be protected or, or considered as some kind of uh, uh, impermissible target. Um, I remember some of the discussions happening up at the, the, the UN regarding what would be what should be considered in the cyber context to be an unacceptable target for anyone in any situations. Uh, but there's been a lot of discussion around norms, around developing norms, around how to uh, manage state behavior in that sense, particularly questions, as you've mentioned, about applications of international law. Um, but given that the, the, the rules are still quite fluid, the rules are still, it's not that they're unaccepted, but they are, there's still a great deal of discussion about what those rules actually entail. Um, and given we have all those rules, regulations, rights, etc., to manage and moderate responsible or, or to encourage responsible state behavior. The question then comes, who should be the arbiter of that state behavior? Uh, who should, if anybody, who should be the, in your view, should be the, the enforcer of legal frameworks and norms uh, regarding cyber issues? I mean, I think there's, as you point out, there's this kind of two processes going on. There's a, there's a, there is a kind of norms discussion and, and norms generation, which is happening um, both uh, and the kind of the multilateral level, right? So the UN process we've talked about, some of the bilateral discussions, uh, and is also happening with non-state actors, right? So uh, the Global Commission on uh, Stability and the and the Microsoft uh, Convention and the Paris Accord, which is a kind of you know mixture of state and non-state actors. So I think there's a lot happening that's a you know as we always say with the internet multi-stakeholder and and then there's actual state behavior so what states do uh, and what they take responsibility for and we're seeing more of that right so the u.s has now you know conducted several cyber offensive cyber operations and and said yes we we did that and 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 that is why we did them here are the here are the justifications for why we did them um so those are i think are, are two uh processes you know, who becomes the arbitrator? I think the, the issue is, unfortunately, the, there is no arbiter. And we're, we're, we're seeing a, a split um, between, you know, what we might call like-minded uh, groups. So um, here is a set of, set of like-minded countries saying, 
uh, here is a behavior, we've attributed it to specific uh, Russian actors, this behavior is uh, unacceptable inter uh, international behavior, and we, we you know, reserve the right to, to sanction it. Um, so I think you're going to start seeing that, and we've started seeing that process happen more often. Um, but that is in many ways going to accelerate what people are already talking about, which is a splinter net or bifurcation or decoupling or however you want to talk about it. And then it becomes less a question of innocent until proven guilty, but guilty by virtue of attribution, by virtue of the political act of attribution. Um, do you see in, in that question of, of enforcing international law, or do you foresee in that question of enforcing international law problems with the politics of attribution, given attribution is, is possible but very, very difficult and fraught with uh, technical and forensic problems, and ultimately then it becomes a political decision. Uh, do you see issues there with the, the, the enforcement of norms and laws yeah. when it is a political decision as to whether or not to attribute? Yeah, so I think there, there's a political issue, as you said, is that in, in um, almost all of the cases, you are not relying simply on digital forensics. You're, you're, you're drawing on uh, other intelligence means. And so, as you said, there's a kind of decision uh, that political policymakers have to make about is it worth burning those technical means to, to score the political points on, on the attribution. And then you have to convince uh, both your partners and the and the rest of the world that this intelligence is legitimate. So I, there's clearly those political costs. I think the other issue is is that as you uh, alluded to, those resources are not evenly distributed in in the world. Right? Um, attribution is is hard, but it, it's harder for some than than others. I mean, we've seen some small players, the Dutch in particular. You know, have have moved up and, and demonstrated some significant capabilities. But there's lots of countries that don't have those attribution capabilities, and so then you get into the issue of well, can only some countries attribute and others others can't? I think there were uh, attempts to try and address that concern through third-party attribution, and I think again uh, referring back to non non-state actors, you know, uh, Microsoft had been floating this idea of a third-party. Uh, attribution center. They've set up the Cyber Peace Institute. It doesn't seem as if it's going to actually play that role. There's lots of kind of complicated issues about how you would share the, the threat of intel. But I think it is a real problem and, and it's one that I think uh, has made it harder to bring in countries outside of the Five Eyes or others with close intelligence sharing with the United States into this um, naming and shaming and sanctioning regime. You mentioned uh, Microsoft a moment ago and, and the, the, the question of using other intelligence gathering means, particularly in so digital forensics or the analysis of particular uh, offensive cyber incidents. Uh, and that raises an interesting question about uh, the role of the private sector, particularly with the discussions at, for instance, the UN and at the various global commissions uh, on state behaviour. Um, given the uh, idiosyncratic role that the private sector plays in this particular sector, in the digital sector. If we look at, for instance, energy, uh, the private sector is well known for being a lobbying sector or, or, or being lobbyists for particular frameworks, regulatory frameworks, etc. 
in the digital sphere, the private sector and civic society themselves play very different roles to that. They're, they're not simple lobbyists uh, in, in that sense. Um, and I was wondering if you foresee any or see any particular challenges for cyber peace, to use that term, and the stability of what is generally called cyberspace, given this idiosyncratic and slightly larger role of both the private sector and, and civic society in that governance framework? I, I think, um, you know, as you said, the, the companies themselves are, 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 I think, uniquely powerful in this space compared to what we saw before um, in the energy sector or, or you know, we, we, clearly uh, companies before have had foreign policies, right? You know, the U.S. fruit companies involved in, uh, um, you know, supporting regimes in, in, in Latin America and oil companies and, and everything else. But the digital companies, I think both because they control the networks uh, and because they control the data on you know, so many countries' citizens, I think have a, have a unique type of uh, power. Um, and you can't imagine some type of shared set of norms or stability without the, the companies playing a, a larger role. I think the, the, the problem is in, in all of the societies, there's an inherent tension between uh, what the companies want to do and national security and national economic interests, right? The companies are global platforms. Um, and we saw this, you know, really um, splash into the open after the Snowden revelations. You know, the companies uh, after the revelations from Snowden, you know, made a point of stressing that they were global actors with uh, users around the world and, and that they were going to defend their users, which meant also from the NSA. So that, you know, in, increases the tensions between what the companies want to succeed in doing and, and what the governments want to, what want to do. Um, at the same time, it, as we've seen Chinese companies globalize and also should have similar tensions, uh, the, the party in China is actually tightening control over, over the companies, uh, increasing party representation, uh, the national intelligence law, which seems to suggest that all the companies you know, have to play a role in the intelligence gathering. Um, so the companies are, 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 and I think it's you know, clearly true for American companies, true for Chinese companies, uh, are always suspect in third-party countries, right? They're, they're always going to be seen as playing some role in intelligence gathering or, or power projection or some influence there. So it, it really complicates the role that I think the companies can play um, and um, makes this an even more difficult space to imagine that you're going to have one set of norms, one set of agreements that everyone ascribes to. I, I really do think we're moving to a set of, uh, unfortunately, like-minded or, uh, or, or different groups of, this is how we control the internet, this is how we're going to behave, and, and if you're going to act in this space, then this is the rules we expect you to follow. And given those questions around the, the, the unique role of the private sector and uh, the, the, the challenges that come with a highly technical and technologically developed space and framework, as we call the, the, the digital space, uh, we hear a lot about those kind of challenges in conferences and discussions today, um, particularly uh, issues of cyber crime, the issues of privacy, the, the Internet of Things. Um, if we could move the conversation slightly in a different direction uh, and look at some of the diplomatic challenges that you've alluded to and I'd like to explore those a little bit more. Um, what in your view are the, the, the primary diplomatic challenges for these 
given the kinds of threats that we're seeing and the kinds of problems, but also the kinds of opportunities that new technology, new digital technology can provide the world today? I think the, you know, the diplomatic challenges are, one is we are working, I think, towards this bifurcated space. So then the, it becomes very much a, a challenge of, of trying to bridge values. Um, which is not an easy thing to do on the diplomatic front. It's easier to, to point out where you might have some shared interests, where it, it is in uh, the self-interest of, of all countries to act in a similar way. But the more that cyberspace is seen to reflect um, you know, democratic values or governance systems, uh, then it becomes, I think, increasingly hard for, for diplomats to kind of to bridge that space. I think the second, is, as you alluded to, is the, just the, the technical challenge um, is we're, you know, we're, we struggle to get, you know, diplomats and analysts and others who had uh, expertise in the digital world to start thinking about international relations and foreign policy, or we struggle to get people who had foreign policy experience to start thinking about digital issues. And we've maybe reached a point now where I think we have a fairly uh, you know, growing center of gravity that, you know, we have a number of cyber coordinators in ministries across the world. Uh, you know, we've, the GGE process has been going on now for, you know, more than a decade. Um, so there's, a, I think, a, a growing center of it. But we're now going to be caught with a new wave of innovation driven by, you know, AI and, and quantum and, and 5G. And so we're going to have to do it all again in, in some ways. Um, and those you know, again, we're going to have a problem with expertise and, and talent and things there. So that's all the, I think, the negative. Um, I think on the positive side, uh, we see that coming. And I think we can draw on lessons from what we learned in this last decade on the, on the digital front. Um, so, you know, uh, how do we attract the right type of people? I think we've gotten better at um, Clearly, the, the, as we've alluded to earlier, the next, the, there's no way of dealing with these problems that's not going to be multi-stakeholder so, um, or multilateral, right? So there's no one country that can address all these issues. They're going to need partners, uh, and those partners are, are going to be both within their own societies uh, and internationally. Um, and so they're going to have to draw on expertise um, uh, in a whole range of places that they, you know, traditionally foreign ministries would have not been tapping into. Well, thank you very much, Professor Siegel. My uh, it's been a pleasure to, yeah. to, to speak with you today. That's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Dr. Adam Siegel for joining us. Listen to us again next week and hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify, or on SoundCloud. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>